Maureen Dowd is notorious for her searing commentary on American politics. A columnist for the New York Times since 1983, she's covered nine presidential elections, including those involving Reagan, both Bushes, Clinton's Bill and Hillary, Obama, and of course, Donald Trump. I'm Edwina Throsby, and in today's episode of Ideas at the House, Maureen Dowd is in conversation with her friend, journalist Julia Baird, at the Antidote Festival. They dive right into an analysis of the deplorable state of US politics and reveal the story behind Maureen's Me Too exclusive with Uma Thurman. Just a heads up, about halfway through they discuss Uma's traumatic experience on set with Quentin Tarantino. It's pretty graphic, so maybe skip that part if that's an issue for you. Maureen and Julia are on the concert hall stage of the Sydney Opera House. She's been known as the protagonist for the American people, the antagonist of American presidents. George W. called her the Cobra. Obama, she will tell you what Obama called her to her face. Donald Trump has called her a wacky dope, amongst other things. (laughs) Now, I like to think of her in the same way that her publisher, Arthur Salzberger, did when Donald Trump came to the New York Times. in an attempt to seek support, and he walked out of the room very genial and saying, look, we've made this contact now, just give me a call, you want to talk to me about something, just everyone, you can just give me a call, the only person who can't give me a call is Maureen. (laughs) She goes, she's so tough on me. And the publisher turned to him and said, with Maureen, what we always say is, it's not your fault, it's just your turn. She's also a lot of fun and a great friend, and when I went to interview her years ago now, in 2005, um, I was working on a paper about US columnists when I was a fellow um, in Boston, and three years later, I mean, sorry, three days later, after going to try to go to Washington to interview her, we were, like, getting kicked off blackjack tables in Vegas. That's what it was like. And I want to start off, first of all, by talking about one of the weirdest adventures that we've had recently, which I think is a kind of an insight into, into, into you and your kind of journalism, it, which is in a roundabout way, which is that on New Year's Eve, <clears throat> we went to the opera together and we went to, which was incredibly beautiful and it was really cold. I think it was snowing and... Um, There was a black tie dinner on afterwards and we were sitting there and very merrily and then suddenly the head of the Metropolitan Opera came up to us and said, Maureen, I am so sorry to do this, but the Clintons are here and they want you to move you from your table because (laughs) we were sitting right next to them. So they got Maureen, so there's a round table here, and Maureen's back was to them. So they got, they walked her, well, they didn't walk her around, that she was able to make her own way around the table, and then come over and sit next to me. So we were now just staring straight at them instead. And there was a security detail that was kind of placed right behind us, and I knew that she'd been reporting on, you know, three American dynasties for, and, th- and, and that, the Clintons particularly for 25 years, and in a very open, interrogative fashion. But that, to me, seemed to be an extraordinary moment. Uh, this was um, the proudest moment of my career. <laughs> <laughs> 
because um, the Secret Service agent was sent over to guard my ass, or ass, as you say here, <laughs> and um, my ass became a national security threat. And <laughs> that was great. Um, just to, uh, to interrupt myself for a minute, I just want to say this is so <laughs> cool and scary. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I tried to move here right after college, and then I thought, oh, gosh, what would I do? And now I realize I could have just spent my career torturing prime ministers instead of <laughs> presidents. But, um, <laughs> but back to the Clintons, the funny thing was I was thinking about this last night, and I realized that the opera that we saw was Tosca. And since we're in the opera house... Um, you guys will get this. And Tosca is now known as the Me Too opera because, uh, you know, it's about a guy who violently forces himself on a woman and then she jumps out a balcony. And, um, you know, it's, it's about, uh, you know, sort of sexual abuse. And it was just weird watching Bill Clinton watching that. <laughs> Very operatic. But he got caught quite flat-footed in this recent wave of d discussions about, about Me Too. What would have happened to him, his presidency, were it post-Me Too? Yeah, well, um, you know, he has been... Uh, there's been a lot of revisionism about that now, and uh, that's why the Clintons stopped speaking to me 20 years ago, because I said, you know, it was an abuse of power. He was in... Per Parentis, how do you say, locus? Yeah. yeah, because he was the father of the country, but also Monica Lewinsky's boss. And also, if Hillary wanted to be a feminist icon, she shouldn't, you know, be directing these smear campaigns against women who were truthfully saying they had slept with her husband. You know, she should not be actively involved in that, or what Betsy Wright called bimbo eruptions, and they would smear them as trailer trash or stalkers. Mm. And he said he still doesn't, he still doesn't need to give a personal Yeah, well, apology. then he gave, you know, he did a book with Robert Pattinson, a kind of thriller, and they were on book tour, and, and someone on MSNBC or CNN began to press him on this, and uh, he seemed really shocked. And I just think that Hillary and the feminists had spent so many decades kind of enabling him, and he was able to hide behind their skirts on this issue. And what I didn't like about it, it was kind of a gun-to-your-head approach where Bill and Hillary would say, you can have our amazing progressive policies on women, but in return, this handful of women have to be collateral damage. You have to let us smear them so that they won't get in our way. You know, it was kind of like conflating the fate of the Clintons with the fate of the Republic, and that's what bothered me about that. I want to come back to the whole um, question of Me Too because you've done some really important reporting around that as well, and a lot of it's come from the New York Times. But let's just come to the present day, and in, in particular what's happened over the past um, few days with the grieving for John McCain, and in particular the funeral. So Donald Trump is on the golf course, but we have two former presidents there, and so much excitement. I mean, I think two things. Firstly, a discussion about American identity and what it meant to lose someone like John McCain. And secondly, 
to even have a moment when W passes a, a mint or a piece of candy to Michelle Obama and people are so excited about it because it's like a moment of rapprochement. What do you, how do you view this kind of spectacle of grief and nostalgia that we're seeing now? Um, you know, as a political journalist, I often get asked, uh, you know, who, which politicians do you really like or love? And uh, or hate, and I always try to tell people that um, those are not, those are emotions I save for boyfriends, <laughs> not <laughs> politicians. I don't really want to have dinner with them. I don't want to, you know, pal around with them. And um, so, but the closest that I would say, you know, of, of sort of being friendly with someone and kind of admiring them was when I got to know John McCain in the 80s. And at that point, he would joke that journalists were his base because uh, he was feuding with the Republican leadership. Mitch McConnell hated him. Uh, and he wouldn't talk to them. He would just talk to us. And he was really fun. Like, you know, I think he pictured himself as a pirate. And, you know, he I, going out to dinner with him was so much fun because he, I remember this one night we were having dinner and he turned to me, he goes, do you think I should get a neck job? <laughs> you know, he goes, but I'd be out of work for too long. And I mean, no other senator in the history of Washington would talk to you about getting work done, you know. <laughs> and he was, he was fun. But then, you know, as time went on, he got, um, you know, he, he wouldn't be so idealistic. He got a little more obstructionist when President Obama came in after Obama beat him. And he, you know, he created Sarah Palin, which created the Tea Party. And then he had to kind of pander to the Tea Party to keep his seat in Arizona. So he was sort of a, you know, a different guy as he went along. But his funeral was so amazing because uh, it was like a tableau vivant of uh, this nostalgia for bipartisanship and a time when the norms mattered and, and President Obama and W and um, uh, Meghan McCain all made these veiled speeches trashing Trump for politics that are petty and ugly. But... Can I just add in there what Megan McCain said? She yeah, yeah. Said, the America of John McCain is generous and welcoming. She's resourceful, confident, secure. She meets her responsibility. She speaks quietly because she's strong. Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful thought, and we are having a hideous identity crisis. But the thing is, it's also a little bit... Um, uh, what would the word be? Kind of uh, disingenuous, because... Uh, a lot of politicians, for instance, a lot of Republicans have used racist ploys in the past. Trump, that is not a new thing to Trump, but the Republicans like their racism more subtle, you know, and they have supported cruel poli policies, but they like that cruelty to be delivered in a more, um, in a way that respects the norms, norms. So, you know, some of the Trump stuff is, I mean, it's way out there and it's embarrassing and crazy. But on the other hand, you know, it isn't like we had this amazing, perfect political system where everyone was great to each other. I mean, in fact, it was 
interesting that each that McCain chose W to give the eulogy because the most hurt John McCain ever was was in the South Carolina primary in 2000 when he was running against W. And he had done really well in New Hampshire, so then W was under pressure to have the firewall in the South. So uh, the Bush campaign, um, you know, and or rather supporters uh, launched this really bad smear campaign against McCain, which he just knocked him on his heels. It was, you know, the, he has an adopted daughter, Bridget, from Bangladesh, and in the smear campaign, he had had a, a black child out of wedlock, and uh, Cindy McCain was a drug addict, and McCain was gay, and just all of these things they hit him with, and he sort of never you know, got over that. He never got his footing back. And so, um, you know, these, these ugly strains have been used by other people, but in the case of the Bushes, they had a middleman. So what Trump has done is cut out the middleman. <clears throat> and what uh, people seem to be particularly nostalgic for already is, is Ob President Obama. He is seen as the hallmark of decency, of integrity, of deliberation, a positive for some, a negative for others. Can you tell us what you thought of his presidency, how much those characteristics mattered? And I also be, I want you to tell him to tell us about your encounter with him when he gave you some constructive feedback. <laughs> um, well, David Axelrod has, who you know, was Obama's top strategist, has this theory that, like in romance, people always want the opposite with the president. So uh, with W, uh, they had, like with Clinton, they had kind of loosey-goosey, so then they wanted, like, straight black and white with W, and then they got tired of that because of the Iraq war, so then they wanted cerebral and nuanced and grays with Obama, and then they got tired of that, and so then they wanted, you know, black and white again with Trump. And, you know, I think there's uh, something to that theory. But um, my <laughs> encounter with uh, President Obama, you know, I think I was one of the first people to suggest to Rahm Emanuel that Obama would make a great candidate. I mean, he, he just has many, many gifts. And... Um, so uh, I was covering him almost exclusively in 2006 and 2007, and we were on the road together. And at one point, he went to Europe to try and get some foreign policy experience. And we were flying between Paris and Berlin, and they decided to give us all 15-minute interviews. So the Washington Post guy went up, and Time Magazine went up, and then it was my turn, and I went up. And I was really excited, and um, he... and. I, he said uh, to his aides, can Maureen and I be alone? Like he dismissed all his aides. And I thought, oh my God, he's gonna give me some amazing scoop. You know, I'm gonna be the new Scotty Reston. <laughs> it's gonna be so great. And he looked at me and he goes, you are really irritating. <laughs> And I was so devastated because this cool future, you know, commander-in-chief was, you know, already done with me. So then he looked at me and repeated it. Like, you are really, really irritating. <laughs> 
so I, um, it turned out that, you know, I'd been, I, my coverage of him had been very gushing, but I teased him a little because when he went into working class states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, you know, he would um, order a beer, but then he wouldn't really want to drink it, so he'd pass it off to his body man. And then he would, like, order a cheesesteak, which is a tradition in American politics, but then he wasn't going to touch that because he was very concerned about his weight. Like, his, literally, his wedding ring was falling off. He was like one of these actresses who considers an Altoid a three-course meal. <laughs> um, but he looked great, you know. So um, anyway, I would tweak him a little about that, that he was a little finicky about food and stuff. And he told me, you know, that he goes, you set the zeitgeist, and I don't like the zeitgeist you're setting about me, because he, he felt he wasn't coming across as cool. He was coming across as, you know, finicky, and um, that he liked things like arugula, which Julia says is rocket here. <laughs> and, uh, and I was kind of like, but you do, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you do like that. Um, but... Um, <clears throat> yeah, but we, you know, I, then our relationship was never really uh, very good. And, and, but the columnists would go for off-the-record briefings at the White House. So I went once, and um, <clears throat> he leaned over Paul Krugman, who was between us, and said, I want to thank you for giving me... I had given him, during the campaign, a DVD of Mad Men, which was new then. And he said, I really loved it because the uh, Elizabeth Moss character reminded me of my grandmother, who was one of the first businesswomen, a banker in Hawaii. And, you know, it was interesting for him to see that. And then this great thing happened. Paul Krugman spilled his whole salad in the president's lap. <laughs> and for that one moment, I wasn't the least popular columnist. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Donald Trump, the short-fingered vulgarian who, as you've pointed out, likes to start sentences with, the beauty of me is, <laughs> which I love. You've likened him to a mobster living in an alternative dark universe, and you also have talked about this thing of his, your term for it is ego arithmetic, which I think has been consistent through his life. And when I was um, at the New York Times editorial meeting with you, um, when he came in and everyone was quite surprised that he would be coming in at all and seeking endorsement from a newspaper that he had so consistently trashed and would again the minute he came out the door. And what he handed out to everyone there was just a thick wad of papers with a series of, like, unexplained numbers on it that was all supposed to be his interpretation of the polls, cut and pasted in this kind of almost bizarrely amateurish way. So... Tell us about this ego arithmetic and how, what, how that works for him psychologically. Um, well, first of all, Trump is narcissist, right? He's a malignant narcissist, so we are the mirror. So his most intense relationship is not with Melania, obviously. It's uh, with the <laughs> press. Tortured, intense, passionate, you know. And... Um, he, uh, I got to know him when um, he was a sort of bon vivant around New York. He was almost like a cardboard cutout who would just be taken around to different parties. And he didn't drink, so uh, 
you know, he would just be there holding court at different parties in New York, and he was a very flashy um, businessman about town, so I would interview him. Funnily enough, the first time I interviewed him was in 1987, and I called him because um, Mikhail Gorbachev was on his first visit to America, and um, uh, he was meeting with uh, the Soviets, and um, I asked him what he thought, you know, would happen, and he goes, well, you can't trust the Russians, you know, we have to be really careful, we don't want to make a deal with them, they're like totally untrustworthy, and then I called him after he met with uh, Gorbachev and the Russians, and and I said, how did it go? And he goes, they're fantastic, they want me to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, and, you know, I love them, they're great. <laughs> So that's when I realized, like, basically one compliment, and he's yours. Uh, <laughs> and, when, and when you asked him about becoming president? Yeah, so then I would do these lightning rounds with him sometimes, because he has a very short attention span, as you might have noticed. They actually have to write his name in briefings when he goes to foreign countries to keep him reading from one graph to the next. They'll say, Donald Trump, you know, every graph. So... Um, <laughs> True story. <laughs> so he, um, he dipped his toe in the water in 99, and uh, he, I went with him on his plane with Melania, who he was dating then, to uh, Miami, where he talked to a bunch of Cuban-Americans, and the minute he saw a Trump 2000 sign, he kind of skittered away. He was, like, scared of the whole enterprise. And we went on his plane, which was all gold and had a double bed and French Impressionist paintings, which he said were real, but, of course, couldn't have been, and junk food. And, um, and I said to him, what on earth makes you think you could be president? And he goes... He looked at me, like, really hurt, and he goes... I get the biggest ratings on Larry King. <laughs> and then he was trying to think of other number-related things. And he goes, Melania's been on a lot of magazine covers. And a lot of men hit on Melania. And my name is in the General Motors building five times. He even, you know, has a fake floor in Trump Tower <laughs> to just have more floors, a floor that doesn't exist. So it... <laughs> You know, so it sounds like it's higher. So, obviously, and, and you know, the first thing he did when he was inaugurated was to get into this total conniption fit because the U.S. Park Service tweeted out a picture that made his crowd not look as big as Obama's. And he just went crazy, and, and now he has pictures all over the White House of his crowd looking bigger than Obama's. So, but this has not changed. It's intensified. As one of his biographers said, he's getting distilled down to his essence, which is a scary thought. But he always used that ego arithmetic. He always gauged the value of everything by numbers. And now he's just discovered that the, the, a different kind of arithmetic, the Google algorithm, doesn't work so well for him. Oh, this is so funny. So <laughs> Trump, uh, does, even though he's the first, like, president who kind of got elected and, and makes policy on Twitter, he does not really know how to get on computers. And, um, you know, Mark Cuban said that he 
uh, if he sends him an email, Trump will have his assistant print out the email, and then <laughs> Trump will get his trusty black felt marker and write on it and mail it, you know, to Mark Cuban. He used to do that to me too, but it's funny, he hasn't evolved as far as computers, and he calls the iPad the flat one, like bring me the flat one. <laughs> and he, um, so early on in the White House, his press team, the usual thing during the campaign, he'd have Hope Picks print out 30 of the top stories about him. And he would read the printouts. He wouldn't be reading on the computer. And so early on, the White House staff began to get upset because when they gave him the printouts, most of them were negative, and Trump would get really in a grumpy mood all day. So they began um, scouring for some positive thing, no matter how weird the outlet, and also soliciting from friendly outlets, uh, you know, positive stories, so they would have, be able to have some in this pile they would give him. So uh, the other day, I guess, someone taught him how to Google, and he's on Google, and with horror, he realizes that nobody likes him <laughs> around the world. I mean, he's getting this unfiltered stuff, so he starts tweeting about how horrible Google is, and then he, uh, Larry Kudlow, his economic advisor, announces they're going to have a big investigation <laughs> into Google and Facebook and Twitter. And uh, Steve Bannon wants them nationalized and wants all their data. And all because he just looked on Google and realized, hey, you know, he's not Mr. Popularity. <laughs> Speaking of investigations, can you answer this question, which has been orbiting Twitter for months now? which is, does Melania have a body double? Okay, this hasn't been revealed yet, so don't tell anybody. <laughs> it's just between us. Uh, yes. She has many body doubles. Um, actually, no. But <laughs> I do love... This is a big thing on um, Twitter now where they're analyzing... You know, she got on a plane the other day and then got off. And in the picture, her hair looks darker and her face looks uh, fatter. And so everyone's analyzing, like, is it the same woman? But I do love the image of Melania kind of in a sable coat in her room at the White House reading Vogue or something <laughs> while she sends out, you know, body doubles. But then the body doubles don't really work because they flick the president's hand away. Um, but the funny thing about Melania is that, uh, you know, I've called her the Slovenian Sphinx. And um, we, because she rarely talks, we're all trying to figure out. And, you know, the liberals have uh, turned her into this liberal fantasy. They were thinking that she was going to go in disguise to the Pussy Hat inauguration march. And they think maybe that um, this Democratic billionaire, Tom Steyer, could pay her the money that she would have gotten in the prenup, and then she could come out and trash Trump. <laughs> but I really, I think that's a fantasy. I don't think she really will trash Trump. She may leave him, but I'm not sure she would publicly hold a press conference to say how awful he is. But 
so anyway, we analyze her, but she is a great troll because A, she made her project cyberbullying. And every time she gives a speech about it, like last week, Trump is spewing all this ugliness on Twitter, being a cyber bully. So that has to be a troll. And then she, like after the Access Hollywood thing where Trump was grabbing uh, women's pussies, she wore a pussy bow uh, blouse, as they're called, to the first debate. And then she wore the jacket that said, I don't care, which was weird. Because then we thought she was trolling her husband, but with that jacket to the border, you know, to visit kids in Texas when they were separating families. Uh, with that jacket, we weren't sure was that trolling the press. So we don't know. She may be trolling both, but she is a master troll. Now, were Trump to be Googling himself or having someone Google himself on his flat thing on his behalf, he, he, the words that would be coming up often would be impeachment, indictment, you know, Cohen. There's a, there's a, a list of misdemeanors. We're not sure what it will actually result in. How consequential will they be? Is he in serious danger, he or his son, in serious danger of impeachment? Yeah, he just was tweeting about that. Um, I always forget if it's morning or night there, but he was tweeting about that just as I was leaving the hotel. No collusion, but at least he's learned to spell collusion, so <laughs> we're making headway there. Uh, <laughs> um, my uh, former assistant, Ashley Parker, is a wonderful Washington Post uh, White House reporter. And she has a story in this week that says he's getting increasingly nervous about impeachment and has taken to calling it the I word. Um, and uh, because of all the felonious activity around him with people flipping, and now it's like a movie, now his accountant has kind of flipped and uh, gotten immunity. And as you know from movies, whether it's uh, Mel Gibson and Joe Pesci and Lethal Weapon or um, The Untouchables, when the accountant gets in, the schlubby accountant gets in the middle of it, something bad is going to happen. <laughs> and I'm sure Trump is nervous about this. This accountant was his dad's accountant and his accountant. He knows where all the bodies are buried. He's come up with the fake uh, companies to pay off the Playboy model and the and the porn star. I can't believe I'm saying that about an American president, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the risk of impeachment. Oh, yeah. So, um, because of all the felonious um, activities around him, obviously the noose is tightening and it makes impeachment more likely because if the, it will help the Democrats the blue wave in the midterms, and then if they take back control of the Congress, I think it will probably be irresistible for the Democrats to impeach him, even though they know that when the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton, it backfired on them because after that, Bill Clinton was more popular than ever and they began losing seats. So they know that, but I just don't, you know, they're like lemmings. They're just gonna go for that impeachment. They don't care. And, um, but then probably the Senate will still be Republican, so Trump wouldn't be removed from office. And Mueller 
is a very, you know, it's a fascinating cultural collision with Mueller because he is straight arrow, Marine, Boy Scout. He's so straight that he only wears white shirts. He doesn't even wear blue. Like, that would be too daring for him. So he calls the Justice Department Mother Justice, and he does abides by just, he's, he's like a rule abider. I don't know why the Republicans don't just drop Trump and run Mueller, you know? <laughs> but um, so he is abiding, and the policy as it stands now is that uh, a sitting president couldn't be indicted, and everyone seems to think that Mueller will abide by that. So he will deliver a harsh report, uh, Trump won't be indicted, the Democrats probably will win the House, and they won't be able to resist impeaching him, and the I-word will get, uh, make him increasingly anxious. And, you know, it's hard for me to believe that I would have covered three impeachments of U.S. presidents in one career. It's crazy. Okay, we spoke about the beauty of me. I want to talk about the beauty of me too movement for a while as, as well. And just because the New York Times has done such significant reporting on this, um, as the Pulitzers would attest. Now, and, and you reported on a story by Uma Thurman. And she indicated in the middle of it, when, when all those initial stories were breaking, that she was angry, but she wanted to contain her anger. And when she was ready, she was going to speak. And you contacted her, and she decided that she would speak to you, not just about Harvey Weinstein, but about her relationship with Quentin Tarantino. And you went to see her after her play, and she said she had obtained this footage. And although you had the flu, <laughs> um, I'm laughing because... Well, this is where Julia <laughs> saved the whole story, because um, after my ass became a national security threat, <laughs> we went to a play, we went to Uma's play on Broadway, and just that day, I got this really bad case of the flu, and so I had requested, I don't know her, I just had asked her if she wanted to do an interview, because she had indicated she had something to say about me too, and she said yes why don't you and Julia come backstage after the show? And we went backstage, but, um, and she kept saying, I have this footage, I've spent 15 years getting it out of Quentin Tarantino, and, you know, I think he tried to kill me. <laughs> so it's the best story of all time, right? And, but I had the flu, so I was like, I have to go now. <laughs> And Julia's like, let's see the footage. <laughs> and and um, I was dying. Yeah, and any, she, she said this story was burning a hole in her, but um, she very graciously waited till um, she got, uh, the, till I got over the flu and was able to interview her. Uma was like, I suppose you want to tell my story. Um, you're writing a story. And Maureen's like, no. I do not. Like, and I was like, no. no, no, she doesn't mean that. Um, and we're really, she's like, shall I show you the footage? And her co-star was like, no, don't show the footage. This is so sensitive. If you mean that when Harvey Weinstein, you know, when, when Quentin Tarantino cried, tried to kill you, and I was like, and she's like, no, I'm going to show it. And Maureen stands up and goes, I'm going home. Well, I hear, I hear that Australians have like 15 different words for throwing up. So that's what I thought was about to happen. Which anyway, you got a copy of it, and which ended up being a story that Maureen wrote, which was about, now she did mention that she had been, you know, assaulted by Harvey Weinstein on two separate occasions, one of which she went on a complete mind blank about. So she can't properly remember it. But the other was when she was on set of Kill Bill, that I 
iconic scene when she's driving the car, it's a convertible and she's going to kill Bill, and her hair's flapping around in the breeze behind her, and Quentin Tarantino had said that he didn't want the medics or the stunt people to be on set. She tried to say repeatedly, I don't want to do this, I don't want to drive this car, this is, there are malfunctions in this car, and... Um, can someone else drive it? No, 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 no. And he said, I've driven the course myself before and it's straight. I checked it out for you. You drive straight and I need you to go at least 60 miles an hour because I want your hair whipping around. And eventually she ended up doing this, but, but when she got in very quickly, it came, became apparent that the road was not straight. And tell us about reporting this story and, and what, you know, because it, it, came, it was a whole different kind of element to the Me Too stories as someone who was a muse and part creator, director. Well, you know, it reminded me of they had a relationship that was often compared to Alfred Hitchcock and Ingrid Bergman, the auteur and the muse. And she actually, you know, helped him come up with the idea for Kill Bill and he had their initials and the credits as, you know, coming up with the story. And, um, but Alfred Hitchcock was obsessed with Tippi Hedren and she did not, you know, she was not romantically interested in him. And so when they shot one of the scenes with the live birds, he let the scene go on and on to the point of sadism. And um, Quentin Tarantino, I learned, I asked, Uma this, and, and it was true, when he, when the scene, um, it was Michael Madsen in Kill Bill where he spits on her, uh, Quentin actually spit on her. He wanted to do it himself. <clears throat> and in the scene with the little Japanese girl when she has a rope and strangles her, Quentin wanted to strangle her. So there was just something weird. He was obviously, he has a foot fetish and he would, you know, be obsessing on her feet and <clears throat> was sort of in love with her. And, and at three o'clock one morning, uh, I was interviewing her and she began crying and she was saying it took her 47 years to realize that um, when someone says they love you, that it shouldn't be manifested in cruelty. Mm. Um, we're about to open it up to questions in about two minutes, just, be, just while we're um, preparing for that, and I think there's microphones there. Um, can you tell us where you think the Me Too movement is at now, particularly with what hap has happened with Asia Argento? The relationship with Rose McGowan, Rain Dove sending text messages. It's this whole messy story, but we know that one of the key, you know, iconic voices of the campaign herself has been severely compromised by an allegation of her own, you know, alleged sexual assault. Where does that leave me to? Um, I think if you uh, grew up in a diet of film noir, as I did, you know that women or can be as deadly as men. It doesn't happen as often that women uh, are involved in sexual assault cases, but it happens. So I think we were kind of in a, a rigid position on Me Too for a while where every woman had to be believed and every man was not believed and there were no gradations. And, you know, I just... Asia Argento was sort of one of the there was a sort of unhealthy uh, coliseum aspect to it, like 
urging on with bloodlust that men lose their reputation and career before people had had a chance to give due process. So I think now there's going to be more of an idea that you you know victims have to be respected and we have to investigate but men also have to have due process. Mm. It's been fascinating. All right, I think we got we're going to open up for questions now. If I can't see properly. Ah, oh, there we are. People. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is so <laughs> scary. Oh. <laughs> Um, and while we're waiting to see if anyone's got a question, I'm going to ask you some of the lightning rounds that you do, which is the things you used to do with Donald Trump when he would just give you a, you would just give him a line, and then he would give you a very quick answer. Are we still waiting? Ivanka Trump. Ivanka, or Javanka, as we call Jared and Ivanka. Um, <laughs> I think in the beginning... Ivanka tried to present herself as the sunny morning in the dark American carnage uh, White House of her father. Uh, but I, I think that's been kind of uh, blown apart now because um, when the hideous uh, thing happened in America about these children being separated from their parents and mothers, even small babies, and then they sent them off and didn't seem to keep track of where they were sending them. Ivanka had said one of her big issues was going to be women and children and parents and children, mothers. And so there was this national kind of scream of pain, Ivanka, where are you? You know, can you address this? Can you talk to your father? But I talked to her about it once and, you know, She's like, I can't be Bernie Sanders, you know, and I can't, I can't, I can, I can try and persuade my father of the things I think he should do differently, but kind of like I can't do it all the time. I have to pick my spots. But I think everyone has completely uh, lost faith in the idea that she's going to be a softening or leavening force on this dark, dark White House. Okay, over here. Yes. Um, hi. Um, I'm, I've been an avid follower of American politics for a long time, and obviously I'm following the midterms quite closely. I mean, I was really upset that Chelsea Manning was bullied into um, not running, and I wanted you to just comment, and um, it feels a lot like what's happening here in Australia with the Liberal Party bullying um, candidates who they don't deem suitable. Um, and also, what do you think about the infighting in the Democratic Party? Um, are the progressives um, left side of the Bernie camp, are they getting any traction, do you think? Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, I, I interviewed um, Alexandria Cortez Oxano, or Oxano Cortez, <laughs> I forget. But she is uh, absolutely cool and uh, uh, pistol, you know. Obama, for some reason, didn't endorse her, but um, I think she has the kind of energy and uh, appeal to her district that the Democrats need to cherish if they're going to, you know, win the House. And um, But the problem is a lot of socialists now, it was, uh, th that was the scariest word in you know, in Obama's campaign, and he really didn't want to be labeled with that. But now... 
you know, and this is a problem with the Democrats. They were always so scared. They stopped calling themselves liberals. They were scared to call themselves liberals. And so they called themselves progressives. But the socialists now running aren't scared. You know, they're very kind of fearless. And But the problem is that the, the it puts the Democratic Party in kind of a civil war because they also need more centrists, you know, to win parts of the country that those candidates can't win. And then, so it's like we've got more socialists on the left and then, you know, more kind of Trump uh, mini-me's on the right. So it's, it's, everything is getting much more riven, you know. And yeah, we, uh, Julian, I think Chelsea Manning should have been allowed to come, obviously. <laughs> that was from the both of us. Yes. Love your work. Uh, there's a lack of cue on this side, so I've got two questions to make up for that. Um, one is a personal one. What are the sliding doors in your life that led you into the, into the position of political journalism? And number two, many people say that the respect for the US presidential office has been lost. Do you think that it can ever be regained post-Trump? Those are great questions. I, um, you know, I majored in Shakespeare in college and uh, <laughs> that seemed like good preparation for covering politics. And, you know, and as you know, in recent years, and this was one of Hillary Clinton's problems, she put absolute faith in big data. And when um, Bill said he sensed there was something wrong with the white rural mail vote, and he's the world's leading expert on it, and wanted, he wanted to go campaign, you know, Hillary's 35-year-old campaign manager made fun of him to reporters imitating his southern accent, like, oh, I should go check out the right white rural voters, there's something wrong. He would literally mock the former president for realizing correctly what was going wrong with the campaign. And so they thought they had the big data model and I highly recommend Amy Chozik's book on this because um, she has a very, our former Hillary reporter, she has a very chilling scene where they had a big data expert who they compared to um, the mathematician in a, a beautiful mind that he was this genius and he came in on election night to uh, the expensive uh, suite in New York where they had the custom-made Ralph Lauren purple outfits and he's like, well, there's a problem in Florida. You know, they had lost Florida. And they were sort of flipping out and they're like, well, at least we still have Pennsylvania. And the mathematician goes, well, actually, if the model in Florida is wrong, it's wrong in Pennsylvania. And the whole thing kind of turned around in an hour. And, and I had always been suspicious of big data, but actually earlier on election night, I had kind of shrugged and given up. And I figured, okay, everyone seems to think that the human factor doesn't matter here. It's all baked in the demographic cake. And so when that happened, you know, it justified my feeling that it is like Shakespeare because Shakespeare tracked all of the primal emotions and nothing has really changed about that in two centuries. And running for president is the most personal. 
I mean, uh, voting for president is the most personal vote that you make. It's like about your future, your children's future. People lie to pollsters. So uh, I just think a lot of human stuff comes into play that big data, big data is a great tool. I just don't think it can replace the human element of covering and reacting in presidential races. And um, your other question was about uh, what's going to happen with what influence Trump will have on our future politics. And that is the central question. You know, will, is he an aberration or will our politics forever be, you know, I call him the Rosemary's baby of <laughs> reality TV, social media, and politics. And are we doomed? You know, Mark Cuban wants to run all these, The Rock, all these, uh, Kim Kardashian and, and Kanye are looking into it. So will the appetite, are, are Americans replacing the old kind of uh, experienced pals with sort of uh, entertainment, celebrity candidates? Oprah, you know, there was a flurry about Oprah. So... I think that we don't know the answer to that. Will they scurry back to the safe kind of candidate or will their appetite be, you know, for the big celebrity stars? The one thing I do know, I do think Donald Trump is an aberration because no one will be able to do what he does. It's a unique kind of amalgam of scary traits he has <laughs> that I don't think can be replicated by all the little mini-me's. All right, and just one question. Uh, yep, hi. I, I just have a question about the trade war going on in America. Have the tariffs placed against China imposed by Trump, Donald Trump have any pos um, positive outcomes on the American or Chinese economy? Yeah, I don't, you know, I think the, the jury's out on the trade war. I mean, I have heard politicians in America complaining about about these inequities for 30 years, but nobody was gonna do anything about it. And so, like many things, Trump has this bat sonar where he, you know, there's always a kernel there of something that he has going for him. He just can't match it up with knowledge because uh, he doesn't read anything except about himself. So I, I just think the jury's out a little bit on whether he can make some of this a success and more fair, or whether our whole economy is going to go down the tubes. I don't, I don't really know. Mm. It always reminds me of that, the editorial meeting, which I often talk about, because that's my only ever in-person contact with him. And he, he was asked about the tariff he was going to place on, you know, importation of Chinese goods, and he was like, and someone said, well, what, what amount, what level? And he was like, 30? That was at that meeting, yeah. <laughs> and someone pushed him on it. He went, maybe 35. The, oh, the difference, like, the exponential difference. Oh, yeah. Of economic impact. He was just calling out crazy. It was like right. when Joe McCarthy was calling out numbers of communists, like 25, yeah. 125. But the kernel being, being there, being that instinct you're talking about. Yes. I, I wanted to touch on uh, the first part of the answer of, uh, before. 538 currently has the blue wave coming in at about a three, of four, three out of four chance, which is, as they keep on telling us, the same percentage that Hillary had in 2016 at around the same time in the election season, two months out. 
My concern really is how the media or the liberal bias that tends to come out, not saying that it is there, but whether it's Stephen Colbert or a lot of the entertainment shows or Roseanne gets put off of ABC for saying, having her own racist rant. My concern as an American living in a far off land uh, down under, um, that there'll be that turn away and that the Democrats again will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And so I want to know what your take on how we can be more, at least have it go more moderate from now until election season. Which takes us back to the question of now what do we do? Yeah, that's, that's a really smart question. And um, uh, it, Democrats just have this way, as you say, of, of going too far sometimes. But um, I think that where Democrats are making their mistake is Hillary made a mistake because her whole ad campaign was about what a dog, or to use a Donald Trump word, <laughs> Donald Trump was, that he was just this hideous person. But I think his voters already knew that. That's what they wanted. They wanted a Rottweiler who would bite the face off of Washington, D.C. So they knew he was awful. You know, that, that isn't what bothers them about him. They like other things about him. So the Democrats seem to me to be going down that road again where, you know, they're just counting on the awfulness of Trump to get them through. And I just think they should be developing a more positive vision and more alluring candidates. And, you know, I asked David Axelrod recently, I'm like, well, who, who in 2020 do you have who's really appealing? And he's like, oh, we'll worry about that after you know, 2018, and I'm like, really? You know, because this is a historic chance you have to defeat Trump, and they don't really seem focused on it. Why not? I don't know. I, I well, partly they're sort of out of practice, because in the 20 or 30 years that the Clintons dominated the party, they were not grooming attractive successors. You know, they were dominating. The party was basically the Clintons. Then when Obama came in, he was not grooming. He didn't even let other politicians stand on the stage with him. He was the man alone in the arena. You know, and I, I just think that, you know, you see the frustration among a lot of younger Democrats where they just feel like they, you know, no one's setting them up to kind of be known. Uh, hi, Maureen, and uh, hi, Julia. Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, what, what's a very, very long distance from New York? Um, my question's a little bit back more to something that you mentioned at the start mm. and what America's going through at the moment in this identity crisis. Because I think it's very easy to laugh and to be horrified by the things that Trump does. Um, he does a very good job of doing that himself, so it makes us all very worried. But the other thing that I think that worries a lot of people is what this says about America and about the divisions that seem to be coming to the front and they seem to be you know, dividing the country and dividing people's opinions. And at the end of the day, Donald Trump was elected. We can argue that maybe he got a little help from the Russians, but he was elected. So if he goes away tomorrow and we talk about what happens next, how do we deal with, or how, do, how does America cope with those divisions? Do you find that the candidates will continue to be like Trump because there's that voice there? Or do you think there'll be a recognition and a reconciliation of some sort? Well, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure this out. Did the internet 
culture in America, which is so vicious and nasty, we constantly have reporters, most recently our tech editors, saying, and Maggie Haberman, our amazing White House reporter, saying they're going to get off of Twitter because it's just too hateful. And uh, then, of course, they sneak back on because it's an addiction. But um, I think that did that coarsen the culture and that allowed for Donald Trump to rise because, you know, it's unimaginable that someone who is um, talking in a veiled way, not that veiled, but, you know, about my... Uh, organ is bigger than yours with Marco Rubio in a debate, you know, how does that guy get to be president? And I just wonder if that whole, the way he got to be president was, again, he, Steve Bannon claims this is Jungian, you know, that he reads Jung and come up, comes up with the nicknames, but he comes up with these really nasty but sometimes effective nicknames like, um, uh, Jeb Bush was low energy, and then you started thinking of Jeb Bush as low energy, you know? So, but an insult, Don Rickles kind of campaign, I just wonder if the reason that can work is because that's how people are on Twitter. So, Jaron Lanier, who's a friend of mine who's the father of virtual reality, one of the founders of Silicon Valley, has a book out about 10 reasons to delete your social media accounts. And he calls the social media giants behavior modification empires. And indeed, Twitter just retooled its whole algorithm to get more negative response. So Jaron thinks that Twitter is rewiring Trump's brain in a negative way, which is the scariest thing I've heard yet. But I, I think your question is really smart because to me, the question here is the American identity. We, we were lost, and I think a lot of people voted for Obama because they thought he'd talk them through to the other side of who we are. And, you know, Obama was more like, come on, globalization, get on the train, you know, rather than sort of talking these lost people, you know, who were losing uh, their factories and their sort of identity in America through it. And... Uh, I think, you know, because we used to be, we had this one image of John Wayne, strong and silent, and now we're kind of weak and chatty and mean. And, but obviously we don't want to be. We want to get back to some sense of values and be the shining city on the hill. So in a weird way, Trump is uh, def helping Americans define who they want to be, a lot of them, because they don't want to be Trump. And that's why he's revived a lot of civic society, a lot of institutions that had been moribund, like journalism and feminism and liberalism and um, the ACLU and Stephen Colbert <laughs> and bars and shrinks. So he's kind of having an energizing effect because I think it's causing people to think about the American identity and who we want to be, and we don't want to be this embarrassing apricot toddler, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It is such a delight and a treat to have Maureen Dowd. Um, her columns have um, informed and entertained and made us laugh and made us think for so many years. So let's just thank her for being here now. Thank you. Thank you guys.
You've been listening to Maureen Dowd talking to Julia Baird at Antidote 2018. You can watch the video of this conversation and other Antidote events on our YouTube channel. And you can find that link in our show notes, plus some of Maureen's best takedowns. Next week on the podcast, Raj Patel, Jonathan Drury and Liz Jackson share some practical tips about how we might save the world. See you then.